invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. If that rings a bell, that's because we've turned an important corner in our study of the history of the New Testament church, this that theologians refer to as the church age that we are currently in now, have been for the past roughly 2,000 years. This is the record of not only the ascension of Jesus Christ, but the advent of his spirit that now descended and is indwelling those who have embraced Christ by faith for the remission of their sins and who follow him now. As the disciples did back then, no differently except we don't have the literal incarnate Christ living with us any longer. We certainly have the living Christ within us that we're able to follow. And so we're continuing this same age, even though we're about to conclude in this text, we're about to conclude not today, but in the coming weeks, this wonderful book that we've been going through now, uh, it's been... Well, it was two years, uh, April 19th, 2019 is when we started. So we've been on quite a few journeys with Peter and John and then later on with, of course, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy and all the rest. We've been through a lot of adventures. We've seen a lot of things take place. So it's a um, momentous time for me to be concluding this book in these next weeks And Lord willing, after much prayer and consideration for some months now, have decided that following the book of Acts, Lord willing, I will begin at John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 1. And we'll go through John's Gospel that we might be able to see the risen Christ as he was, in fact, walking this earth prior to the book of Acts. So we'll uh, look forward to that when that time comes. This morning, we're looking at the fourth part of the series, Paul Sails for Rome. And so we're beginning in chapter 28 and verse 1, and we're going to just look at chapter 28, 1 through 10 this morning. So let's read together, beginning in chapter 28 and verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed. And putting his hands on him, healed him. 
And when this was taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came, also came, and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And we, when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Father, thank you so much for this journey. It's been quite dramatic, but important. Every bit of it, every detail is significant because it confirms the veracity of this record. Many of these things can still be discovered today, yet this record was written two millennia ago. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the rest that we can share whenever we read your word that it is in fact your word. In its originals, Lord, it is your word in perfect. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us now with the text that we have before us to show us the things that we would learn, something that goes beyond, perhaps deeper, than simply the record of a shipwreck and being washed up on shore. You put this in your eternal record for a reason, an important reason. You don't do anything without importance. So may we be mindful of the text. May we be focused on the text and the preaching of this word. And may our hearts be receptive to whatever whatever you decide to show us from your word. May your spirit be at work for your glory's sake. For we pray in your son's name. Amen. So we've been all through this shipwreck. We wound up on some kind of a reef or shoal uh, between Salmonetta Island, which is, there's a little narrow band of water that where two currents of uh, water meet and create sandbars or shoals of some kind. They're not exactly sure what, but the ship is hung up on that. They had you remember, anchored it with four anchors off the stern so that during the night, because they could hear the shore, probably from the waves crashing, but they didn't know exactly where they were, so they simply uh, fastened the stern where it was so that the bow would be pointed in the right direction so that they could just slide into shore in the morning. That's the plan. They cut the ropes, they wind up, hung up, the ship does anyway, on the shoals. Now, the water is still battering the ship, if you'll remember last week. The water is, is still crashing. They had 14 days of this storm as they've been tossed through the uh, Adria part of the Mediterranean Sea. And now they're at Malta. To hit a little pinpoint on a map is really uh, providential, clearly, uh, quite remarkable. But that's where they wound up. And so they're washing up on shore now. They, of course... The ones that could swim, the centurion Julius had said, those who can swim, jump over first. And uh, my contention is that they probably did that so they could help the others find pieces of debris to float on, those who don't know how to swim or, were un, or swim and were unable to do so. So they're making their way into shore as this chapter opens up. But the important word there is safely. They've all arrived safely, 276 of them, just as God had promised to, to the man. So we have all these washed up on shore, but it's a shore that they don't really recognize. They're not sure where they are. They have to be told they're at the island of Malta. Ancient Melita is the original uh, name for the island, and now it's Malta. 
they usually would land in a uh, port city, the capital, the main city of Valletta, which is at the eastern coast, and they, because of the storm, had come up under. So all these things are interesting because you wonder, God has purpose in every single thing, down to the 276th person that was saved and exactly where they would be beached and exactly who they would meet with and so on. So they find out anyway. They're washed up, soaking wet. They're chilled to the bone. This is November, cold sea waters, rain. They don't know where they are. They're completely exhausted, we can assume, weary. And coming up on shore, 276. What does that look like to the natives on Malta? Exactly. So they find out where they are. So they're not really sure what's going to happen because they don't know exactly where they are immediately until they're told they see natives. They wonder where, what's going to happen to us. Put yourself there. After going through what that harrowing experience that they went through uh, during the whole hurricane and being tossed and battered about. And remember, verse 20 of chapter 27 said they had gotten to the point where they abandoned all hope. All hope got to the point where there's no possible way that we can survive, yet here they are. We won't have the kind of appreciation for what God has done unless we remember that. He gets the person to the point where they say, we are not going to make it. And then he saves them all. It's remarkable. So there's only one of this great horde of survivors that's not surprised this outcome does not catch him off guard, and that's who? The Apostle Paul. I mean, I can picture him. Of course, he probably isn't like me. I would have said, see? That's all you need to say, right? I mean, isn't this exactly what I told you the angel said? Not any of you will perish so long as you stay on the ship. Do as God says, and you will survive. Even when it doesn't make sense to you. Stay on the ship. The soldiers, you remember, they were ready to jump ship. They were getting a little dinghy. They said, we're going to go and drop an anchor off the bow, and they grab a hold of the lifeboat. And so Paul sees them, and he tells the centurion, unless we all stay on board, we'll perish. So... That's the end of that plan. The next plan is when they're convinced that this thing's blowing apart, it's falling apart, we need to kill all of the prisoners. The soldiers thought, because if, we, if one single prisoner escapes, that soldier that was supposed to be his guard is going to have to suffer his punishment. That's Roman jurisprudence. That's, their, that's the protocol for their law. So it's quite a remarkable scene. I'd say that in a word, the thing that kept the apostle from falling apart or panicking or getting upset or angry out of his fears is his faith. His faith. His faith is what's most commendable here, clearly. I mean, if we've allowed our mind's eye, our imaginations to travel as much as is humanly possible for us to put ourselves there, it must have taken a massive amount, a rock of Gibraltar kind of faith to suffer the things that Paul did and not fall apart. He actually got to the point, you remember last week, where 
He's concerned about them. We noted the the compassion and the caring of the apostle. And those circumstances, as weary and beat up as he must be, there are those who think that uh, uh, Luke came along as his physician and Aristarchus as well to, to take care of him because he was probably not in very good health. You reflect on all of the missionary journeys he had been on, stoned, thrown out, beat up, locked up, and spread eagle in the, in the prison in Philippi. So this is his faith. So what, when things look completely improbable, that's when faith grabs a hold of God's promises and smiles in its face and says, if God said this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. As I said, it was originally called Melita. This is an island that was settled by the ancient seafaring Phoenicians. The Phoenicians go way back to 3rd century, 2nd, 3rd century B.C. They're uh, an Arabic people that had come from the, uh, uh, the Gulf over by the Red Sea. The, uh, they came up into what was, that area was considered Canaan. The Canaanites, you know, and you remember they were a, a prehistoric people. They were an ancient people. Canaan was the son of Ham, who was, uh, of course, Noah's son, who was cursed. So the Canaanites were a gritty, a primitive sort of people that used to do sacrifices and so on. When we were in Israel, we got a chance to see they actually dug up a, a Canaanite. So this is 3000 BC, 2000 BC, whatever, uh, altar that they used to do sacrifices on. So the Phoenicians had come up into that area. The, the area that they pretty much settled was from Gaza to the south, the whole Mediterranean east coast, from Gaza all the way up to Tyre and Sidon, up where modern-day Lebanon is. But they're, they're not, they weren't a country. This is not a country. Phoenicia is not a country. It was a confederation of mariners, of, of tradesmen. They would trade, but they were known for their uh, expert sailing abilities, and that's, they eventually made their way to Malta or Melita, and settled some of their folks there. So they're speaking a, a tongue that Paul and the rest of the Romans and Greeks aren't familiar with. And so the word uh, barbaroi is used where it just simply means that they're, um, uh, they use the word barbarian from that or just foreigners, really. They're speaking a language that they don't understand. They're not really, they wouldn't be considered a civilized people. So... These natives, and by the way, the word Melita, you'll like this, means refuge. You think that struck Luke? I think so. Refuge. Verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So the native people, the Barbaroi, so these are the Phoenicians. These are what they would have considered the Greeks and the, those that have been Hellenized, if you will, 
from Alexander the Great. He reestablished uh, a civilized culture that was known for education and culture and the arts and so on. Those were the civilized area, and these were what they would consider uncivilized people of Arabian descent, as I said, and so they're speaking a different language that they don't understand. We can have fear that wells up in us if we can't understand the people that are coming to meet us. And so out of those fears, we tend to, because we're a fallen race in our entirety around the globe, we tend to think the worst. Should I brace myself here? These natives are, are just, it's, it's crazy. We fear the things we don't understand. And so I don't understand them. So our tendency is I, I don't like them. I like what I understand. You know, you can imagine that, can't you? You can put yourself there. But here's what's interesting, and I put this into a point for you, a salient point, I think. The capacity for and ability to convey kindness and mercy lies innate in all human beings. What you're seeing there is a response that I would assume is somewhat unexpected. Unusual kindness. Let's say they're coming in a group. These natives are coming in a group They're not there to attack Paul and the rest of the sailors. They didn't arrive with spears. As Jim Elliott and his party experienced in 1956 from the Alka Indians when they were all speared to death. Sure, we're capable of that. Not just those that speared Jim Elliott and his companions, but all of us are capable of that. But this is what's striking, or should strike us, I believe, is this issue that they were met with unusual kindness. Like they're coming at us with a potluck dinner. I mean, where are the spears? Where's the anger? There's got to be fear going on. Who, Who knows? I mean, the weariness and the exhaustion alone, the conditions that they've been through tend to make us weak anyway, which defaults to the flesh all the quicker, doesn't it? Unusual kindness? Why? He may not have been able to speak the, live, the civilized language, but they spoke the universal language of human kindness. We have that capacity. Even those who don't necessarily know the Lord have that ability. We have to remember that, I think. It would do us well to remember that. So instead of attacking the vulnerable sailors and plundering the the stranded ship, the natives come and render aid. You know what? Come to think of it, there are groups like that. Peace Corps, Red Cross, right? Aren't necessarily Christians. We like to be nice if they were. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? This is the remnants of the image of God that remains in man. To varying degrees, maybe not always consistent, maybe not with all people, but it shows up. Here it is on the shore. They were vulnerable, to say the least. Washing up on shore, completely exhausted, broken down, weak. They're vulnerable. 
weren't attacked. They could have gained everything was on ship. See the ship out there busting apart? Let's go see what's on it. They don't do that. So even unbelieving pagans have the God-given capacity to extend kindness and do good things. How about that? Where do we get that from? Is there some theology there to undergird that? Well, of course. Of course. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Listen carefully. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, think Mosaic written law, by nature do what the law requires, where did that come from? They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Sounds like they'll be held responsible for something that is innately in them, doesn't it? They show that the work of the law is written, where? On their hearts. Who made that? God. What a glorious evidence of a God. That even in the pagans we see, when these vulnerable people could easily be attacked, plundered, they come and they start a fire to warm them up. They extend a hand of mercy and grace. They don't take advantage of them. They're not worried about who they are, where they might have come from. They're not worried about that. They see a need and they tend to it. That's what mercy does. Mercy extends grace. And grace defined is what? Favor, maybe they don't even, what? Deserve. We're not, to, we're not to adjudicate these things in our mind. They're barbarians. They're speaking language I don't understand. They live a life. I wouldn't live like that. Who are these people? Where do they come from? Christians, above all, are called to possess a heart of kindness and produce that produces goodness. How much more so those of us who aren't just trying to gin up the, that which is innate in us. No, we have the living spirit of Christ in us that allows us to extend kindness when kindness isn't necessarily deserved. As a matter of fact, if I spend too much time in this sin-sick, shriveled-up mind, I'll find 90 ways to Sunday why I don't have to do that, and I shouldn't have to. According to my laws, they're on their own. They shouldn't be here. This is our island. Kindness is an internal thing. Kindness is, is internal. It seeks the peace and the happiness and the well-being of someone other than yourself. That's kindness. Goodness is simply the external expression of it. That's why they're listed together in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You remember? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. 
they go together. If I have the kindness of Christ, I will do good things. Not rocket science. Galatians 6, second half through 10. The one who sows to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of what? Doing good. Sounds like a quaint little statement. We like that it's not really definitively or clearly defined. I like to think that I've done some good things today. And that'll do some good things tomorrow. Let's leave it in that sort of generic category, shall we? So we don't get too crazy. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then we have opportunity. As long as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's our charge. Everyone. Not just those I can understand. Not the, just those that look like me or walk like me or talk like me. Everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, one of my favorite statements about Jesus in Acts, when we went through chapter 10, you remember the household of Cornelius and all that with Peter? It says this in verse 38, that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power he received from God. And then this, he went about doing good. As a matter of fact, he asked something along those lines when they wanted to kill him. For what, for what good work will you kill me for? And that's supposed to be us. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I wonder why he has to keep putting that word everyone in there. You remember how narrow... The Hebrews, the Jews made the word neighbor, love your neighbor. They decided that that meant fellow Jews. No one else. Matter of fact, they, it allowed them, it gave them license, they thought, to have contempt for anybody that wasn't a Jew. How'd they, what'd they think about the Samaritans? That mixed race. Contempt. Get their dirt off my sandals. That's what it engenders. If we don't let the text of Scripture say what it says, this says everyone this, to me, this says everyone, stop picking apart and finding reasons why you don't have to do that. They're breaking the law. They're on their own. They get what they deserve. Titus 3, verse 8, second half. Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We're to be devoted to that. Our life emphasis should be that, thinking outside of ourselves through the kindness of our hearts where Jesus reigns. It allows us, Him, we're saying, in, in, in a sense, we're saying, Jesus, use my eyes 
draw my attention to those in need. But not that group. Not them. Devoting ourselves to good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Not just people of your kind. People that I approve of. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good. You see, this shows up everywhere. But we get, we're able to gloss over it because, like I said, it just sounds kind of generic. Don't neglect to do good. Well, I did good. I got up today. Made coffee for my wife. Believe me, in our house, that's a good thing. Do good and to share what you have. Oh, hang on. In this economy? Uh-uh. Let them find it themselves. They didn't ask my approval for coming up on my island. They're on their own. They get what they deserve. Aren't you glad God didn't say that to you? I'm glad he didn't say that to me. Especially since I'm defined in Romans 5 and verse 5 as his enemy. I'm his enemy. I'm the least deserving on the planet. You think he'd find a bunch of people that are kind of decent people. Maybe over in Israel. His own people. Those are his people. You made me one of your people? Me? I told someone this morning in the first hour, the only reason Paul says I'm the chief of sinners is because I hadn't been born yet. And I mean that. So we look at the self-sacrificing, servant-hearted Apostle Paul and the viper that could not stop him. Look at this, verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, okay, hold it. I have to stop right there at this first clause. I can't go any further. This, look at what it says. Paul was gathering sticks. Paul the one who single-handedly rescued the ship by being the de facto leader, telling them what needed to happen. That Paul, who's about to stand before the emperor himself, he's going to stand before Caesar with his life in Caesar's hands. That Paul, you'd think he'd be Strutting on the shore. I'm, I'm the guy who saved, well, it's not looking so good right now, but everybody's saved because of me. He's picking up sticks. Who's he thinking of? Paul? Get out of my way. I'm really cold. I got to get some sticks to get this fire going that the natives started because they were thinking about us. Paul, you've been with him a long time now. This Paul, are are we grasping, are we getting a hold of the self-sacrifice, the selflessness of this man? 
how he's always thinking outside of himself. Who does that remind you of? That's why I, I, I'm looking forward to preaching through John. I can't wait. I want to see him. I want to know him. As much as we have human capacity to understand the words he's given us by his spirit. It's, it's not that a leader should be expected to do menial tasks. They're not expecting Paul to do that. That may not be the best use of his time as the leader that just spared the entire 276 of them. It's just not the best use of his time. Don't, don't do that, Paul. We got other people that can do that. It's that he has a humble, selfless quality of character. So when he sees something that needs to be done, he just does it because he's seeing other people that are cold and hungry and being rained on, and he wants to keep the fire going, so he just does it. That shows you the character of the man. That shows you something of the Christ that lives in him, doesn't it? Would Jesus do that? Probably do that and make you a plate of fish, too, from what I read. An awesome. Can you imagine getting served breakfast by Jesus? What did that taste like? He knew his Savior. He knew him that well. And he wanted him manifest. Well, if you want to be manifest with my presence, Paul, there's somebody that's got to die. And I've already done that myself. So who do you think I'm talking about? You, Paul. You have to die to yourself, to that ladder-climbing, rabbinical, I studied under Gamaliel, your whole resume that you've got listed in Philippians 3, throw it on the dung pile, doesn't mean anything, nothing. Christ and him crucified, that's it. That sends us on, even in the face of death, our faces are set like his, like flint, in the face of death. It doesn't matter. Why? Because of the promises of God. You must get to Rome. That's it. That's all that's on his mind. That and noticing with the eyes of Christ the needs of the people. You haven't eaten in two weeks. You all need to eat now. Say what? He says with his shackles on, the prisoner Paul. Sent in the bar high, brother, Paul. That reminds you of Jesus, doesn't it? Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Listen to this. He says there to the disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Talk about spiritual abuse. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever should be first among you must be your what? Doulos, your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life 
a ransom for many. Aren't you glad that that many includes you and I? So the next clause in that verse is, this is interesting, isn't it? A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So this sight had to rattle the natives. Now let's watch the other side of fallen humanity come out in the natives, the fickle, capricious, vacillating human nature, and after that, the goddess justice. Yes, this is a goddess that's being referred to here. Let's take a look at this, verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. This guy that you were just building a fire for? Showing not just kindness, remember, unusual kindness. Now he's a murderer because he's got a viper hung onto his hand. Probably thought it was a stick when he was gathering sticks, picked it up. It was probably cold, and then when he picked it up and there's the warmth, it's a viper. That's what the Greek word means. It means viper. So if it's a pit viper, it's poisonous. That's all there is to it. So he's going to die. Just like that, he survives this to come and die. Justice is taking care of this. So he's, he's a murderer. So people's judgments, we, can, we know this from, if not the story, from experience, that they can turn from favorable judgments of us to what? Unfavorable like in an instant. <laughs> That's part of our human nature too. Capacity for kindness and good things. But this is also inherent in us by the fall. We're judgmentalists by nature. When Paul, you remember when Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra and he was uh, healed that man that was lame, and this is in chapter 14 of Acts. And when the natives of Lystra saw what he had done, remember what they shouted in verse 11 and 12? They healed the lame man immediately. He must be what? A god. Yeah. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. And immediately... In his humility, <laughs> he corrects them. It's kind of like John when he's taken up into heaven and he bows down to the angel and the angel's like, get up, get, get up. You got the wrong powerful being. I'm not God. I'm a servant just like you. Don't do that. You're embarrassing me, right? So he corrects them crying out, men, Verse 14 and 15, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And what happens to him? Well, in verse 19 of chapter 14, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they're furious already. They've already judged him. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. In a few short verses, they go from being gods to he needs to be executed right now. 
People, and here's, here's another principle I want you to think about. People should never be judged solely on their hardships, on their failures, or on their successes. Good principle, isn't it? Oh, yeah, he's, this happened to so-and-so. Huh. What's our tendency to think? He must have done something wrong, right? Or he's a failure. He keeps, he, he's a loser. He, God's not happy with that guy. That was ancient Hebrew thinking, and it's wrong. So we should never do that. I remember hearing a man once say that a man should be judged by the content of his character. And then in verse 4, the second half, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So this isn't referring to the fair application of the law. It's referring to a goddess. It's either Themis, who was the wife of Zeus, according to the Greeks, or it's the Roman justitia. That's, by the way, the statue we have in New York. Uh huh. Sorry, Patriot. True justice is the right application of God's law. Plain and simple. I'm not at liberty to redefine what justice is. The one who is righteous is the one who determines what justice is. The one who wrote the laws that define him. And it's the right application of those laws. That's justice. You wouldn't think we have to repeat such fundamental principles in the body of Christ, but apparently we do. It does us well to remind ourselves of that before we go about bending the knee to other people's definition of what justice is. This is a goddess. That's what they believed in. In verse 5, he shakes the creature off and doesn't suffer harm. So this is the statement here. God's protection is promised to his children, but it operates within and in accordance to his sovereign plan. And there's a reason I'm going to explain to you now why that's so very important to understand that, or you won't understand it when bad things happen to you. Psalm 145 and verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. If we're promised to be preserved and protected, all those wonderful things we were just singing about, I mean, why did this happen to me? Why did that happen to you? What, what, how am I to understand this? We would call those bad things, and they are. They're bad, aren't they? When Jesus sent out his disciples, he said to them in Luke 10, verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Well, this, of course, was meant for a particular time and to suit a particular purpose, which is to validate 
the message of the gospel from those who were disseminating it, the, the disciples. They would be able to see that they must be messengers of God because poisonous snakes don't harm them and so on. People misunderstand that these days in snake-handling kinds of churches. And it's sad, particularly since it says you'll be able to take up serpents and not be harmed in Mark chapter 16 comes from a spurious portion of text. Verse 9 to the end, we, we, we shouldn't build a whole church on that that's filled with cages with rattlesnakes in it. Why would we be, be presumptuous anyway? That's one of the worst sins we can, we can commit against God is our presumptuous sins. We presume upon things. And then when bad things happen, if that's going to do anything, it's going to hard my heart against God if I'm not careful. Because I, simply because I don't understand. I don't understand, God. Help me understand. So God shows us that if he wants to get somebody somewhere to perform a certain duty, not the soldiers on the ship, not the shipwreck itself, not the poisonous snake will ever stop them. You must get there. So that's how Paul can stand on the bow of this battered ship being tossed around when everybody's lost all hope and say, wait a minute. We're going to get there, all of us, and we're going to survive. Divine providence, or divine protection rather, this is important to understand, is provided when faith or trust prevails. Paul has complete faith that he's going to finish what God gave him to do. Well, you're thinking, I didn't have an angel come tell me clearly what I'm supposed to do. Where's your trust? That if you're seeking, that's right, through his revealed will, right? And you're applying his revealed will, watching the providence of God unfold in your life, and you're trusting him. This is where, this is your will because this is where I am. It, it changes your perspective. But I love Psalm 91, 9 and 10. Listen to this. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. Melita. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. See, that's the qualifier then, isn't it? If you've nestled yourself in the dwelling place of God, Most High, you've you found yourself safe in the cleft of the rock. If you're under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty and you have an unshakable trust and faith that you will get there, then bad things aren't bad anymore. They're good. They're just in that moment a mystery to us. We just don't know how that they're good, but they're good. We would call them bad. If you don't get there in your mind, you'll, have, you'll be confused and tempted to distrust God or have negative thoughts about God. Why did this happen to me? If your faith and your trust is sound, it's no longer a bad thing because all things work together for what God calls good. For them who love God and are what? called according to his purpose. That's Paul. I want that to be me. 
loss is no longer loss, but gain in another form that I just can't apprehend yet. You see? Bad is not bad. It's good that in that moment is just a mystery to me as to how it is going to unfold as good. But if I trust, if I love, if I believe, if I have faith and believe in what he said, that all things work together for good, my child. You love me. I love you. Everything works together for good. Don't call it bad anymore. You just don't understand the place it place it plays in my goodness in your life. Do you trust me? Do you have faith? It's you have to change your perspective. If you don't, you'll struggle. So what was it? that caused Paul to simply shake off the viper without shrieking or panic? His unshakable faith. It's not going to waver. This that came into my life that I would have preferred not happen, it's not going to matter because my God, who is nothing but good and all love, says it's good, then it's good Amen? Reformed people, you can say amen, say amen. It means let it be so, so let it be, so that you can navigate the course of your life. And when shipwrecks come, you don't get tossed and turned. Why this God? Why that God? What does that say about our faith when we do that? What does it say about your trust? And we don't know when these things happen, do we? You get news. Here it is from your family or from your doctor. I didn't pick this hour. I didn't pick this moment. I didn't pick this disease. Why is this bad thing happening to me? What did you just call it? Am I that weak that I couldn't prevent that from happening? Or am I that unloving, uncaring that I allowed it to happen? then don't call it bad. It's the good that I have in your life, the good that's necessary to make you look like my son. That's the greatest good of all. It's the good that needed to happen to get you in glory, your place with me, and I will get you there. Our, our minds are so petty and small. I mean, if we could set our side of pride, a pride aside, we could just admit that and say, I, I can't possibly understand the ways of God. My ways are not your ways. He made that clear to me. And I say 55, I, okay, I get it. Well, live it. Yes, sir. If by faith... You've made God your dwelling place, the psalmist is writing. You will find refuge. That's why I love this. You will find Melita. Even in the midst of an attack or when bad things 
or as we define them as bad, come. The wisdom, power, the goodness of God has to be entered in to all your analysis, all your quantifications, all of your wondering what just happened. Jesus promises in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm going to finish here so that we can go to communion only to read this to you at the end Psalm 107 two selected portions 23 to 28 and 30 to 31 listen carefully some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, then they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. Verse 30. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. You see, that's the appropriate response. And we need to do that now. Father, thank you. Thanks is hardly enough because we can only reflect on the weakness of our minds, the pettiness of our thoughts, and how grand and glorious and majestic you are, how beyond our full understanding. But you are to be honored, you are to be glorified in all of these things when the storm gales blow up in our lives and toss us about as a tiny boat on a storm-cast sea with darkness all around. And when we cry out to you, O Lord, because we've made you our dwelling place, you bring us to a safe haven. You, You bring us to a place of refuge. These things are only made possible by your Son, Oh, Lord, it distresses me to think there might even be one who doesn't have any idea who you are, doesn't appreciate their present condition and their need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. They don't know that they are already in that sea. The boat has been blown apart and they are drowning. If they would only cry out to you, O Lord, And say, dear God, save me, a sinner. Thank you for sending your son for my salvation. May I honor you with the rest of my life. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.